welcome to episode 9 of A Secret to Everybody. I am Ben. This episode is called Consolation Prize. This week we're going to be talking about some consoles that crash and burn. It'll be something a little different because we haven't talked about hardware yet, we've only talked about games. But if I can get this off my chest, I have to say, last week was probably my favorite episode yet. If I can say that, things like that without sounding like a total moron because I don't want to compliment my own work or whatever. But I had a lot of fun with the microphone part, um, adding in some goofy stuff like the I Love You Barney song in the background and everything like that. I really enjoyed doing that. I hope I can match that episode sometime because I do feel like that's my best one yet. I hope you guys found it as funny as I did because I really enjoyed doing it. Uh, that being said, I hope that this week's show is up to par because I'm not really feeling too well and finals are coming up. So I hope this week is still a quality show. I'm going to do my best for it. So I hope you guys enjoy that. And I, I uh, please, I apologize for sounding sick because I'm not feeling too well. Let's not let that stop us. Let's jump right in here. Um, last week, I talked about how Fez is coming out on PC, and it is now. It came out last Wednesday. I hope you checked it out, because I've been playing it, and man, is it good. It is a fantastic platforming game, and the mechanics are kind of unlike anything I can really remember that I've played before. In the game, you control the character Gomez, who believes he is living in a 2D world. And right at the beginning of the game, that all changes because he's granted a Fez hat, and he gains the ability to spin his world 360 degrees and realizes it's 3D. So suddenly, places that he couldn't even dream of going before are now available to him. That's basically the story and mechanics of the game. What's cool is that this game lets you discover everything for yourself. You aren't given instructions, you know, like, go to this place, rescue this person, do this mission, that sort of thing. You just kind of explore the world for yourself. It really creates a sense of awe in the game, especially when you travel through a series of doors, you just keep going and you keep exploring new areas, and you're like, okay, I'm going to go back and just find that area, I'm going I'm I'm to finish this, but then you keep opening doors and keeps leading new areas, and it just it's kind of like a tunnel effect, you just keep going and going. I really, I can't praise this game enough. The graphics are absolutely breathtaking. They're cartoony, but they're still really beautiful and crisp. They immerse you. The music is superb. It is immersive, like I said, with the graphics, and it matches the areas you visit perfectly. Uh, time changes, and you'll hear music when the morning starts, when the evening starts. Really matches the mood of all that. It supports controllers on the PC perfectly, which I really appreciate, because this game was on the Xbox before, like I said, but... I don't have an Xbox, so I was only able to play on the PC, but the controller works perfect right out of the box, which is really nice for me. And there's a puzzle element to the game as well, too. You collect a few treasure maps, and you have to decipher them to find other treasures, and it's not its not always evident what you're supposed to do with them, so it takes a little bit of figuring out. So overall, with Fez, I recommend Fez strongly to anyone who likes video games, basically. It's one of the finest indie games I've ever played. I think everyone that likes games should play it. Also, I do recommend playing the game blind, though. Like, don't look up stuff in a guide, like, in, or in a, you know, walkthrough or anything like that, unless you absolutely, for some reason, have to. It's kind of like Braid, S same sort of thing. There's more accomplishment in playing it when you figure stuff out for yourself and wander around than when you just look it up and, all that, you know, figure it out. So if you want Fez, it's 10 bucks on Steam, it's on good old games, and it is on Xbox, it's been on Xbox, and I'll link them again this week, just in case you missed them last time. And also another small bit of news, uh, Sony has added an indie games category to their PlayStation Store, so now you can find all the indie games that are available on their service in one convenient place. Uh, it's not a huge deal, but it is nice. Uh, Xbox and PlayStation have both had something like that for a long time, so, so PS, I'm sorry, Xbox and the PC have both had something like that for a long time, so the PlayStation was definitely behind in this aspect, but it is nice to have everything together, and there is a short sale going on to commemorate this new category being launched. 
I believe Retro City Rampage is on sale for half off, as well as a few other things. So check that out if you get a chance and you have a PlayStation. Uh, so this week, I don't really have a, a ton of uh, extra stuff to talk about at the beginning, so let's just jump right into our topic, game consoles. As I said earlier, we're going to talk about consoles that have failed for one reason or another. Most of the ones we're going to talk about were just awful. Some came out at the wrong time, though, so not every single one here is inherently bad. So obviously there's a lot more lame consoles than these. I could have done a lot more, but I was trying to do a quick show this week because of finals and everything like that. So consider this a brief overview, and these are in no sort of order whatsoever. Our first console is the Virtual Boy. This was by Nintendo. It was released in August of 1995. Oh boy. The Virtual Boy might be one of the flagship members of the, cruppy, the Crummy System Club. Where can we even begin? Here's the story. In August of 1995, Nintendo released this piece of crap in the United States. It was the first, I don't even know if I can call it a console, to display true 3D graphics, and it used a parallax viewing system. Basically, this means that each eye sees something different. It's kind of like a, uh, one of those viewfinders, or sort of like a pair of binoculars, where each eye looks through a different lens, and then the light reflects differently, so each person, each eye sees a different thing. So it makes the screen look like it has some depth, instead of just looking at a flat screen. Even the controller is weird, though. It has two D-pads, one on either side, so it's kind of awkward. And it has this big battery pack in the back that drains the batteries really fast. But if you put... There's an AC adapter, and if you put that on there, it makes it even more awkward. So the whole thing is just awkward. And the thing that's funny, too, this thing was priced around $180 when it first came out, but it was advertised as a portable console. I mean, there's no way you could take this thing anywhere with you. Compared to the Game Boy, the Game Boy cost $90 when it first came out, and it was perfect for playing on the go. You know, put it in your pocket, and then when you have a few minutes at work or in the bathroom or whatever, you can you can play it there, and it's easy to use. Can you imagine lugging the Virtual Boy into a car with you on a road trip and trying to play? I mean, that'd be impossible. It was hard enough to play the Virtual Boy on a, on a table or something. I don't know, you could, like, lay down and put it on your eyes. or It was just awkward. There was really no way you could use it without being super uncomfortable. So th- playing it in the car brings us to the next and biggest problem with the whole thing. It makes you sick. The entire system has a red hue to it because the technology wasn't there for full color, which was sort of a letdown since the whole idea was virtual reality with the Virtual Boy. So you're staring at a red screen the whole time no matter what game you're playing. Most games actually for the Virtual Boy even had a feature that would turn it off and put it on standby after a certain amount of time so you would stop and not get sick because so many people complained about not, not being nauseous and dizzy and other things. And like I said, the system is really awkward too. It's, it comes with some sort of stand which means you can either, like, just hold the actual thing, the system itself, or you can put it on this little stand. Or you, It just doesn't make sense. You can put it on, like, a kitchen table or something, but then you have to lean into it to see it because it's like a pair of binoculars, which is really uncomfortable leaning into it to play. So it just, it just didn't work. All of these problems, combined with a horrible game library, only 14 games were released for the Virtual Boy in the U.S., some of which didn't even utilize the virtual reality gimmick. Some of them were puzzle games, like a Bejeweled-style thing, that were just, you know, like a match-three type game, or a Tetris thing where you had to stack them and get rid of them. Like, why did these games need to be on the Virtual Boy? There was really no reason. You know, you would think a game on the Virtual Boy would be something that was more like a Star Fox type thing back then, or it would be more immersive and, you know, a a crowd-pleaser, but there weren't really any Tetris on the Virtual Boy. So the common opinion with the Virtual Boy is that the only good game was Virtual Boy Wario Land, which almost everybody missed because no one had a Virtual Boy. So, you know, most people miss that, but... Apparently it was a good game. I tried it on an emulator, but didn't get all the way through it. It was kind of it's kind of weird playing on an emulator because of the discoloration and things. The Virtual Boy was discontinued a year after it came out, never to make gamers nauseous again. 
Nintendo has admitted that they pretty much fail with this thing, so what can you do? Everybody has an off day, I guess. Our next system, and this is a pretty funny one, is the N-Gage, released by Nokia. This came out in October of 2003. So I guess the story with this one is, Nokia decided to take a break from making unbreakable mobile phones and try their hand at a gaming console. I remember the N-Gage going around. I, remember, I don't know if I saw any commercials for it, but I remember seeing it like in stores and things and didn't really know what it was. But I couldn't, I couldn't understand what it was, so I saw it all over the place, but it never made any sense to me. If you're like most people, like me, you've probably heard of the system but really don't know what it is. So let me explain. The N-Gage was released in October of 03 by Nokia, like I said. It came about with Nokia's bright idea of combining a video game system with a mobile phone. That was all the rage with the kids back then, right? So it had to be good. No. To give you an idea of how awkward this thing was, I found this short satirical quiz article written up by a journalist when the system came out, so I'm going to read that to you. He wrote, To find out if you are a potential customer for Nokia's new N-Gage wireless mobile entertainment phone, take this brief quiz and see how many times you answer true. Number one, I, I often amuse myself and others by holding a taco to my ear while pretending to be speaking on a phone. Number two, as a teenage gamer, I'm willing to pay $300 for a phone, plus $25 a month for a voice plan, $10 a month to play online games, $30 to $50 for each new game, and $50 for a spare multimedia card so that I can listen to my MP3 tunes. 3. Compared with field stripping and reassembling my assault rifle at night while blindfolded, having to dismantle my N-Gage just to load a new game seems trivial. 4. A Trimo GSM world phone is essential for all the times I jet back and forth across the Atlantic during the school year. And 5th, I currently carry in my pockets an MP3 player, a Nintendo Game Boy Advance game console, a mobile phone, a transistor radio, and a taco. By switching to the N-Gage, I can reduce this to one device. So clearly you can see from this, this system was a little bit awkward. The N-Gage released at $300, which is crazy expensive for a handheld. I mean, I, the PSP and the Vita costed about that much, but they were more modern. In fact, in the first few weeks of the N-Gage being out, the Game Boy Advance outsold it 100 to 1. That is pretty bad. A huge problem with the N-Gage was the interface. I'll have to link some pictures of these systems in the notes so you guys can get a look at them, because it's kind of hard to, I guess it's kind of hard to visualize if you don't know what, I'm, what, what they look like. So look, look in the notes for pictures of all these. But anyway, since the N-Gage had to have all the buttons to be a phone, you know, the whole touch pad and the, and the, the phone interface keypad, made it really clumsy for gaming. I mean, who wants all of those buttons, especially on a handheld? I mean, the Game Boy only had the A, B, the control pad, start and select, and it was great. So why don't we, we really didn't need all those buttons on a handheld. It was kind of a mess. Perhaps the most ridiculous part about the whole N-Gage is the ordeal that they made you go through just to change the darn game. So to insert a game, you have to unplug the headset, turn, turn off the phone, remove the back cover, take out the battery, slide out the old game card, slide in the new game card, replace your battery, reattach the cover, then wait for it to power up because you took the battery out, navigate to the game in the menu of the system, and then start it all up again. I mean, geez. Compare that to the Game Boy, when it was just putting a cartridge in and out. And, to use it as an MP3 player, and you, you needed a memory card to do that, but it wasn't included, you have to, again, disassemble and reassemble the whole thing. And you can't listen to music or pl and play games at the same time, which is crap. This is an insane amount of work you had to go through just to change the stinking game. So you better pick a game you like, because it's going to be in there for a while. And finally, with the N-Gage, the phone part was stupid, too. The speaker and the microphone were on the side of the thing, so you held it up to your ear, like, long ways, which looked stupid, and, as we said with the quiz, looked like you were talking into a taco. 
So I'm glad Nokia is sticking to making phones these days, because this thing was just a failed experiment. What is funny now, looking back at this though, is how popular devices like the iPhone and iPad are, because Nokia in 03, I mean this was pretty trailblazing for its time, when cell phones were just starting to get big in 03, Nokia tried this to, to combine it with a game system, which was a good idea, but no one liked it back then because it was so clunky, but now we have iPhones where some people think that systems like the PS Vita and the Nintendo 3DS are going to be phased out mobile gaming because of people just have their iPhone with them all the time and they play games on there. I don't really agree with this because the Vita and the 3DS are dedicated gaming systems while the the iPhone is just like games I've played a few I don't have an iPhone, I have an Android phone. I've played a few games on my phone that are a lot of fun, but nothing is like wow, I, I would give up a DS for this. I don't I, I think the games are usually quicker in nature, more fun to play quickly while you're in the bathroom or whatever. So, I can't see them ever taking over, but it is interesting to compare 2003 with the N-Gage to 2013 with the iPhone and look at the difference. The third console we're going to talk about is the Game Boy Micro by Nintendo. This was released in September of 2005. And unlike the other systems we've been discussing and will discuss, this one actually didn't suck. This tale is one of bad timing. The Game Boy Micro was the third incarnation of the Game Boy Advance system, and actually ended the line of Game Boy hardware, so it was the very last console that Nintendo made with the Game Boy name. The Game Boy Advance, if you recall, went from the familiar front-facing model that it debuted to the Game Boy Advance SP, which had the clamshell hinge and folded into a small square and made it more compact. The Game Boy Advance SP was the first of the Game Boy line to feature a backlit screen and a rechargeable battery, which were two problems that a lot of consumers had with the original GBA, so it fixed a lot of problems. So when the Micro came out, it was a very tiny redesign for the system. This one featured an adjustable backlight and interchangeable plates for customizing the system and to protect the screen. So based on all this, the Micro improved the GBA even more, right? No. Micro came out in September of 05, and you might recall another handheld Nintendo released in November of 04, a little something called the Nintendo DS. And that right there is our biggest reason for the Micro's failure. It wasn't the price this time, the Micro was $99 at launch, which was the same price the Game Boy Advance SP was at launch. However, Nintendo did drop the price of the SP in 04 to, to only $79, but even with this, the price wasn't the problem with the Micro. The DS was backward compatible with GBA games, which meant you could play all the Game Boy Advance games you wanted on the, on the DS, so there's really no reason to buy a whole new Game Boy after the DS had been out for a year. Combine this with the fact that the Game Boy Micro couldn't play your original Game Boy or Game Boy Color games, and you see why almost no one bought it. I remember this thing coming out, and I actually did want to get one, because I thought it was pretty cool and different, and I, I had the original Game Boy, I never got, or Game Boy Advance, I never got an SP, so I thought it'd be kind of cool, but there was really no use for it, because I could already play all the Game Boy Advance games I wanted on my DS and on my Game Boy Advance, and I had my Game Boy Advance to play all my Game Boy and Game Boy Color games. So ultimately, the DS killed the Micro before it ever really had a chance. It is a cool novelty system. Nintendo released a special color model of the Game Boy Micro to, to uh, Nintendo released a special model of the Game Boy Micro to commemorate the Famicom's anniversary, which was the Japanese version of the NES that had the colors of the Famicom, which was pretty cool looking. But all in all, there was really no use for this system because the DS was already out, but it is cool and a novelty. And if you can find one, they are pretty nice because the screen's really sharp and it has good battery life, so a cool little thing. Alright, now back to the crap. Next is the CDI by Philips. This one was in 1991, and this is a big one. The CDI stands for Compact Disc Interactive. The story with this one's interesting. Nintendo was trying to make a CD add-on for their Super Nintendo system, and they were looking for a company to try to strike a deal with to make this happen. 
Sony was the first company that they, they tried to make a deal with, but that deal ultimately fell through, and big surprise, we got the PlayStation out of that when Sony went with themselves to make their own system. So after this, Nintendo looked elsewhere for another company that could help them with their, with their thing they were trying to do, and they eventually talked to Philips, and it started to work, but there was a lawsuit, and things fell apart, and it was kind of a mess. So basically, the Philips still didn't work either. So the Philips decided to take matters into their own hands. Just to put this in perspective to, for you, I once had a toothbrush made by Philips, which gives you an idea of the quality of work that this company is doing. I'm not saying they're a bad company, I'm just saying they're making toothbrushes and game consoles, it's a bad sign. They should have stuck to making health products because this thing was a bomb. The CDI cost around $700 when it debuted. There were a lot of different models, but I think most of them had about the same price. The idea with this thing was to make a system that was more than just a CD player or a game console, but less expensive than a home computer, which were really expensive back then in 1991. It was plagued with issues, though. The games sucked. This is the biggest deal. You've most likely heard of the three Zelda games for the CDI, known as the Unholy Triforce. The titles are Link, The Faces of Evil, Zelda, The Wand of Gamelon, which are two very similar games, and Zelda's Adventure. What happened with these was, Nintendo had licensed their characters to Philips, so, so Philips was allowed to make their own games using Nintendo's characters. But the problem was, Philips' games were complete mockeries of the Zelda series, and the Mario series, but we won't talk about that one. I could say a lot about the CDI, but I think a good way to sum up how bad it was, was to let the stupid thing speak for itself. So I'm going to play a sample from the tutorial, like the little help screen in Link the Faces of Evil. This is the character Link's voice speaking, which should already give you a red flag of Link's talking. Listen to how just gay he sounds, and I'll be back in a few minutes to try to talk about this. Hey! Wanna fight the forces of evil in Korodai? Check it out! It's easy! You got this map, see? Just move the Triforce to where you want to go. Then, click button 1, and flash! I'm there! Use the controller to move me left or right. Move it up, and I jump, or climb. Press button 1 to slash with the sword. When you get the power sword, button 1 makes it shoot. Move the controller down, and I crouch. When I'm crouching, you can make me do the duck walk. Cool, huh? Luckily, I brought my smart sword. It won't hurt anyone friendly. In fact, it makes them talk. Lamp oil, rope, bombs, you want it? It's yours, my friend, as long as you have enough rubies. Rubies. See, it will... Good thing I have my magic pouch. I can carry everything. To open the magic pouch, make me crouch down, then press button 2. Don't forget, I can only open the pouch when I'm crouching. Remember, tools can only be used when I'm standing up. And you'll find that some tools need rubies before they'll work. Hey, let's go find Zelda! Okay, so, first of all, you should notice, his voice sounds stupid. I mean, I think there's a reason Link never talks, but whatever. So the voice acting is horrible, and if you can tell when he's talking about the controls, the controls are stupid. There were different CDI controllers, there was actually even a wireless one, but they were all lame. But if you notice here, the CDI had three buttons, and when you listen to Link talk about the controls in the game, 
the button one is sword. Button two is use item, go indoors, open your pouch. And up is jump, which I hate. Just It's just annoying. So why do they completely ignore the third button? It doesn't make any sense. I don't know why they would do that. Have a controller with three buttons and only use two. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, other than all that terrible stuff, you know, point the Triforce. It's like the Triforce is supposed to be like the incarnation of the goddesses that created Hyrule, and we're just pointing it. It's just, it's just completely irreverent of everything in Zelda, and it's just stupid. And like, it's just, it's just dumb. Like, part of the fun of video games, especially games like Zelda, where it's a lot of fantasy, and they, and games that debuted back in the NES days when we didn't have guides and things online, is just part of the fun of just like speculating and figuring out ideas for yourself. And then you got Link saying, I have a magic sword! Don't worry, it won't hurt people. It's just, it's, it's just stupid. There was no reason for any of that to be explained. It just comes out to be lame and dumb. So, hopefully, just from this little clip of Link talking, you've gotten a kind of an idea of why the CDI was so bad. It was just, it was just the controller was awkward, the same price meant there was no reason to give it a try, and the games were so lackluster that this console just bombed. That was it. Our final console we'll discuss is the Atari Jaguar, by Atari, obviously. This released in 1993 in certain areas, but the general release was in 1994. This system was Atari's swan song. They thought they could surpass Sega's Genesis and Nintendo's Super Nintendo systems by making a 64-bit console. So, quick question for you. How many people do you know that had a Sega Genesis in the Prime? Probably a pretty good amount. What about the Super Nintendo? Probably a lot of people. Any friends of yours have the Jaguar? Nobody had the Jaguar! It was marketed as the first 64-bit console, and preceded the N64, which came out in 1996, by over two years. But the three-year head start, or two-year head start, depending on when you count the release, didn't help this cat. It cost $250 when it launched. Nothing about this system was right. The graphics weren't actually 64-bit, they were partially 64-bit, but mainly 32-bit, so that was kind of a lie to begin with. The slogan was, do the math. I think Atari should have done their own math, or whatever. The architecture was hard to work with for developers. The controller was a mess. Remember the problem we talked about with the N-Gage controller having the phone pad-style buttons? The same deal happened here. Well, I mean, it came before the N-Gage, so you think the N-Gage would have learned from Atari's mistakes, but whatever. It had also had no analog control, no control stick, N64 and the PlayStation both had. So the quality of the games really wasn't that much greater because, you know, 3D games like in 64-bit, like Star Fox or Super Mario 64 or anything like that, kind of need a control stick to be played. I mean, I can't imagine playing Super Mario 64 with a D-pad. So despite all the hype and all Atari's claims, it really wasn't that big of a step up like they said it would be. And this stinker with games didn't have anything. I mean... Who cares if it's the most powerful hardware, you know? Remember all the classics on the Atari Jaguar? No, because there weren't any. So no one, wants to, no one wants to own a console with no good games. So by 1996, the thing was completely dead, and so was Atari. They merged with another company and sold their name, which is kind of a sad tale. Atari released more consoles later on, but that was an offshoot of the company, and something we won't get into in this episode. So there were a lot of other consoles I could have included on this list, but these are a pretty good variety. Like I said, not, a, not everyone is horrible, some were bad timing, and it's, it's a good variety because some were handheld, some were home systems. And a lot of people never owned any of these, or maybe you never even heard of them, so it is kind of cool to learn about them. 
So that is about it for this week, unfortunately. I feel like I don't have as much as I've had in previous weeks, so I do apologize for that, guys. I hope you enjoyed the show this week. Like I said, I, I wanted to make sure I produced a quality show, even though I'm not feeling well. Just a reminder, don't forget to check out the Star Select Network's other shows, the STA Show and the StarSelect.net podcast, which will release on Thursdays and Tuesdays. They're also, all three are available on iTunes, my show and the other two, so if that is something you're partial to, you can get them on iTunes easily. Please spread the word also, tell your friends, you know, like us on Facebook and Twitter, that would be really awesome, I'd really appreciate that, that would really help us out. And this week's outro will come once again from Mr. Grant Kirkhope, I do thank him so much for letting me use this. Uh, that was really awesome of him. I love his music, so we're going to play it again this week. It is the Mayhem Temple theme from Banjo-Tooie, and I will see you guys next week for episode 10.